Well, hello, my name is Captain Bartholomew Smith, and I've got a few stories from my time out on the sea. You know, one of my sea buddies challenged me to sail around the world in 40 days, and it took me 37 years. So I landed on this deserted island, or so I thought, and then all of a sudden, Tom Hanks and a volleyball show up, and we played a game or two. <laughs> At least a 500-foot wave comes pouring over the bow, and my wife, Rhonda Jean, says, this is the worst birthday ever. Worst storm I ever experienced was the summer of 1928. Well, welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Gold, the senior pastor. It's great to see you on this wonderful 4th of July weekend. Can we welcome our online campus, Appleton Campus, Germantown Campus? Welcome, everybody. Man, with a video like that, I don't know exactly how you follow that up. For those of you that don't know, that's Kevin Miller. Uh, and so Kevin was on staff with us for about six and a half years. You can see why Kevin's no longer on staff with us. No, he is a riot. And uh, so uh, they're actually going to um, be missionaries in Europe working with Convoy of Hope. And so they'll be with us in a few weeks as they are uh, walking through the last part of their visa program they've taken the last year to to um, basically to raise your support. And uh, you've been such an incredible, generous giver uh, in that. And then they're going to be, uh, we're supposed to be their last service before they actually kind of get on the plane and leave to go uh, for the next four years of their life uh, and uh, to be there and to work. And so uh, anyhow, they uh, did this video and I just think they're hilarious. But anyhow, so, but I'm a little bit biased because I just know how crazy Kevin is. Ke Kevin, I, 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 I can divert myself to stories, but I need to quit. Um, so today we are in this series uh, on based on a true story. Uh, so, i.e. boats, which has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this weekend or any weekend. It's just kind of a funny, humoristic way of looking at it. If you have your Bible, though, I want you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Last weekend, Dustin kicked us off, did a great job. Uh, Dustin Johnston just did a phenomenal job. Uh, yeah, just a great job. And um, just love his ability to be able to preach and communicate. Uh, he leads our Life Leadership College along with his wife, and they just do a phenomenal job here at Life Church. Today, I get an opportunity. I love preaching like this. Um, this is. Um, because it's what I call preaching out of the overflow. And so uh, I, I, as a, um, how do I say this? As a pastor, I'm constantly reading. Uh, I'm constantly listening. I'm constantly watching. Everything's a, a sermon, a sermon illustration, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And I'm a pretty voracious reader. Um, I usually have several books going at the same time. This past week, week I, left, or I think I read three books. Uh, this just and I'm I just this is just what I do and so and I write pretty 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 much so I, I have sermons that I'm working on and series and stuff that I'm working on that I at some point in time I'm going to get to it I just don't get to get to it and then I'm processing through and there's times where we're just doing a, what we would call standalone we're not in a series per se and I get to kind of preach out of the overflow this is one of those messages Mark's gospel excuse me Mark yes Mark's gospel chapter two I don't think you're gonna look at this quite the same uh, as we kind of walk through this. And I hope that it challenges you. I hope that it makes you dig deep. Maybe it makes you study. But I also hope that it affirms something in you. Uh, this weekend, being the 4th of July weekend, 
uh, everything is kind of around freedom in our country, and we celebrate the freedoms that we have, and we're so thankful for the men and women that have served to give us those freedoms, uh, and, uh, and for all that we have. God bless America. There is no place on the planet like the United States. Whether you agree with this faction or this party or this group or this level of government or not, regardless where you fall on the spectrum of anything, the ability to be able to, uh, to, to let your voice be heard uh, is something that is, is a powerful, powerful deal. I was just in Seattle a couple of days ago, and, and as we were leaving the downtown area uh, department store, uh, there was a protest that was going on. And I'm with my 15-year-old daughter, and at first she's like, Dad, what's going on? And so I'm explaining to her what's happening and why this is going on. And, and there were police, and there were all these things that were going on, and, and we, I didn't even know. I mean, we just kind of walked out, and there it was. And uh, and so we just had this conversation, and, I just, and so she, at first there's this sense of fear that comes over her, and I said, no, 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 honey, that, this is the greatest place on earth. I've been in places in the world where there are dictatorships where people don't have the ability to express their opinion, not in this country. And, and I've been in places where you were literally scared to go outside and had to have AK-47 escorts where you were going, and this is not that kind of a country. I mean, there, there, is, there are freedoms that we have here that we have nowhere else. And thank God for the ability. Because we have the right to assemble, you and I have the right to worship however we want to. Because we have the right to have a free speech, I have the ability to preach God's word without censorship. Because we have First Amendment um, abilities in this country, we're able to worship God and live out the faith that we have in Jesus Christ without censorship. And that is an incredible thing. And if you don't thank God for anything else this Fourth of July weekend, thank him for that. But amen, amen. I, I, this is good stuff. But what I want to do is I don't have points per se. I want to walk through this passage because I think sometimes we dig so much into principles and there are principles that are there that I just want you to look at the story, look at the account, look at what's happening. If you have a subheading in your Bible, if it's grouped that way, it's probably going to be Jesus heals a paralytic. That's, that's how it is in most, or Jesus heals a lame man. Uh, and we just kind of go, oh, I know this story. I, I think you know part of it, but I don't think you know all of it. And so I just want to look at this here. So Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. I'm just going to walk through this. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. And I'm not going to read the entire thing all at once. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to stop, and we're just going to kind of have a conversation, if that's okay. This is just kind of preaching out of the overflow. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, so Capernaum's a seaside village, Several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home, verse 2. And soon the news, or excuse me, soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. So we get this idea, and if you understand, in the Middle East and where Jesus, most of his travels were, uh, Capernaum was just the seaside retreat. It was a seaside village. He, he would go there on a regular basis. And uh, so if you ever have said, hey, man, I really feel God when I go to the lake or go to the ocean, you're in good company. That's where Jesus would go to rest. We, we see this all the time throughout the Gospels. Uh, if you're looking for excuse to have a lake house, this is your time right here, chapter 2, verse 2, verse 1 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Because it says that Jesus returns home. So if you read the preceding and you look at the other Gospels, Jesus has just begun his ministry. And his ministry begins where? In Canaan of Galilee, where he turns water into wine at a, at, a, at a wedding. And then from there, he begins to 
teach in synagogues, he begins to go public. From there, you, and it all began with, you know, this, this in a public format of, of his baptism where God, you know, God sends down this voice. Uh, and there, there's all these multitudes of people following John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And, I mean, there's this huge grand entrance. I mean, all these things are beginning to happen. So Jesus' popularity is, 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 is rising. I want you to think of it like this. Don't think of it like this as Jesus. Think of it like this as whoever, whatever celebrity that's an A-list celebrity, that if they, if all of a sudden someone said so-and-so was down the street, everybody would get up from where they were and go. This is what's beginning to happen with Jesus. Because wherever he's going, there are these miracle signs and wonders. Wherever he's going, he's preaching the same, uh, the same scrolls uh, uh, that, 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 these, that these other rabbis have been preaching, but he preaches it in a completely different context. Part of it because... He actually was there when it happened. And, and so, but he's preaching it this way. And so there's this, there's, there's this liveliness to it. And not only is that, when he preaches, he does, he does um, object lessons. We all like object lessons. And so he, he's, he, when he starts talking about water turning to wine, he actually performs the miracle. And when there's someone that's, that, that's needing to be healed, he actually heals them. And so people begin to show up, and people want to know more, and people are inquisitive. And so really what's happening is, if you read verse 1, he returns back home. So does Jesus own a house? Yes, in Capernaum, in the seaside village. When we hear that, we think, Jesus didn't own a house. Who told you he didn't own a house? Let me ask you something. Would it be weird for, it, I'm going to say something that's going to kind of get me in trouble. Would it be weird for someone who's 30 years of age as a carpenter that doesn't own a home? Yeah, because carpenters do what? They build houses. Do you understand? It'd be like, a, it'd be like an auto salesman that doesn't own a car. They don't sell automobiles in the first century. So Jesus is 30 years of age. Again, at this point in time, again, he, he's, he, he's on his own. He's living on his own. We don't know when his father died, but his father's gone. We know Mary's around. He has brothers and sisters, but they're all living abroad throughout the region. But Jesus is returning home. Scholars will tell us this is where we think that Jesus lived. And because he has this amount of time from the time that he's in his middle-late teens as an adult until the time that he goes public with his ministry at the age of 30. What's he doing for a living? He's a carpenter. Do you think he's freeloading, living off somebody's couch? Hey, Peter, can I stay at your house tonight? Hey, James, can I stay at your... No, he's got his own place to live, and he's a carpenter. This is what he does for a living. How, how can he sell what he does if he doesn't have it? So he has a place to live. He's not living with his parents. This isn't 2017 when it's cool to move in with your mom and dad in the basement. Amen. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching. Good. All right. Uh, so you understand what I'm saying? I mean, he's at his own house. When we hear that, we just kind of go, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, he's got his own house. He's going back home. And what's he doing? He's been on the road, if you would. He's been in the, in the region and been public with his faith. He's been 40 days of prayer and fasting, followed up by the greatest temptation that we know to mankind when Satan himself comes face to face with Jesus and he tempts him with human need. He tempts him with twisting of the scripture. He tempts him with, 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 with basically his, his own ambition and calling, which was to save humanity and to save the world. And so he's dealing with, he's, he's been on the road, he's doing this, and he's just coming home. I've been, I've slept for seven nights. We've been gone on vacation, and, and, and so we, we, we've been gone. And so last night was the first night to get home, and the plane was a little bit late, and the luggage was even later. And so it was about 1 o'clock this morning when we got home, and, and it was just nice to sleep in my bed with my pillow. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's my bathroom. You know what I'm talking about? It's my, I don't want to go into any detail with that, but you understand. Like, it, it's mine. So 
I don't really want to deal with anybody. I just want to be home. I just want to shower. Uh, today I had a bologna sandwich because I like bologna. I'm very sophisticated in that manner. And uh, I just, it's just my thing, man. I got to drive my car and, at my house, and I, I went to my mailbox. And it was just nice just to be home at my house watching my TV with my remote. You know what I'm saying? And so Jesus has been going, and so he comes home. He's just wanting to rest, but the people won't let him rest. And so they began to show up, and they began to show up, and they pack the house. I mean, they just start pouring in so that there's no room even outside the door. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse number, the rest of verse number 2, verse 3. And while he was preaching God's word to them, he begins to just share God's word, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. This is interesting to me because Jesus begins to preach the word because that's what they want to know. They're, they're, they're inquiring of what about this and what about that and connect the dots. And have you ever been around people that are new in their faith? They have a lot of questions. And they, they, they can, can we come over and have coffee? And then it just goes from one hour to two hours to three hours. That's what's happening. It's just going. You notice a lot of times Jesus has to kind of slip away. He's kind of, he's all the time getting away. He's all the time getting, well, at this point he's been able to get to Capernaum because he's lived a pretty solitary, quiet life. But the word's getting out that, man, Jesus is here, and Jesus is here, and Jesus is here. It's kind of like, hey, Aaron Rodgers just went to the restaurant down the street. Let's just all, everybody would be, it would be tweeting and Instagramming and Facebook posts and all of this, and can I get a picture, and can I get a, it's just that type of a deal. So Jesus is there, so he begins to minister to them. That's what he's doing. And there are these four men that bring this paralyzed guy to the meeting. What do you think they want? They want Jesus to heal him. Why? Probably because they're tired of, tired of carrying him around. You know, I would be. Hey, Bob, I'm tired of you, you know, get up and walk. Well, I can't. I understand that's, yeah, but, but we, I know somebody that can fix this. The other thing that's interesting is where's his family? See, in the first century, there was no form of social service the way we have it in this country where you would, you know, you know, there were disability rights and handicap rights, and, and I mean, he didn't have a motorized wheelchair. He didn't have all those kinds of things. And so what would happen in the first century is the family would take care of them. Where's his family? They're gone. These are four guys that are carrying him. We assume they're his friends. We don't know. So we, all we know is there's this guy. We don't even know his name. He's paralyzed. We don't even know for how long or what happened. But we'll later deduce that there's probably, it's probably been for his entire life. And there's no family around him that would have been typical to take care of him. And so they show up. But remember, it's a packed house. Whose house is it? It's Jesus' house. It's not... He's not in the synagogue. And it's very specific at times where he's staying with Lazarus or he's at Mary and Martha's house or he's at the house of Zacchaeus or he's at the house of Joseph, Josephus. He, he's at, he's, no, 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 he's at his home. So look at verse 4. They could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof. I'll get to that in a minute. Above whose head? Jesus' head. And they lowered the man on the mat right down in front of Jesus. Now we read that and we think, man, 
about this time, especially if you got a black choir in the hand of the organ, this is how this would go. <laughs> there was so much faith in the house. Uh, there was no room in the house uh, that God began to open up the roof. Uh, I'm telling you, it was like Miller Park. And all of a sudden, the great light shone right about them. And the Lord, the Lord shone right about them. And the man's body began to float down because Jesus was in the house. That's how you would preach that. Let me tell you how it worked. Whose house is it? It's Jesus' house. You may tell you why he stops. Because who's going to fix the hole in the roof? Him. Now, in that day and time, the, the, the roofs were, 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 were flat. And, uh, and they were kind of a, it was more than a thatch roof. They, they would actually go in the cool of the day and they would eat. And, and a lot of times, it, think of it the way we would think of like an outdoor patio or a deck. That's what they would do. And so they, they, would, they would do that. And, and so roofs were, you know, there was uh, composite materials and, and it was very uh, structurally sound. So for four men plus a paralytic to be able to get up there and then they're having to, they're having to, to dig away the rock and, and whatever, the clay tiles and what's on the roof to kind of preserve it. They're having to move all that stuff away. So, so they're not having to use a jackhammer to get through the roof. But it's pretty noisy. And what's Jesus doing the whole time? He's preaching. Can I tell you that when you're speaking to a group of people and something like that's happening, it's very distracting. If all of a sudden in, in the room, rain starts beginning to fall, everybody looks up. The winds really pick in, and all of a sudden this metal roof begins to give a little bit, and that membrane begins to kind of move. People go, oh, what's going on? If you were to hear a tornado siren go off, which there is not one that's happened, uh, the, it, people would begin to get pretty unnerved because you hear what's happening up here, and you're wondering what's going on. You can imagine what it would be like. These guys are just digging a hole in the roof to get this guy in. Now, they have faith in all of that, but... But I can just imagine what's going on in Jesus' mind. I've got to fix that hole. I've I got to deal with this. Do I take up an offering with these people to do this? Are they going to pay for it? Right? Do I call Scott Mankey and his guys to come over and fix it? I mean, who do I call? What do I do? Right? I mean, I, I got, it's just needless to say. And then the debris falling. Can you imagine? I mean, if you're sitting here and you're hearing that and then the debris begins to fall, what would you be doing? Like, would these guys just sit down and be quiet? I'm trying to hear the guy preach. And they're knocking a hole in the roof. You know, because there's religious people. They start griping in just a minute. We'll get to there. People are all kind of upset. And the asbestos is going on. And, and I'm getting, uh, I got the black lung. And whatever it may be. I mean, what's falling down from this debris of the ceiling and all of this? And so finally they get them in front of Jesus. Verse 5. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man. Now, what would you think Jesus would say? Rise and walk. What does he say? My child, your sins are forgiven. Now let's just rewind the tape here for just a minute. I'm not that smart, but, but, but let's just go. The dude is paralyzed. He's got four guys, and we don't know their names, and they are lowering him in front of Jesus, not for his sins to be forgiven, him for lay on that mat so he can rise and walk so they don't have to carry him anymore. Do you understand? It's, it's, sometimes we read this stuff and we go, Oh, wow. No, it's like a guy that doesn't have a car. You want him to get a car because you're tired of driving him everywhere. Do you understand? It's, it, you're, you're, they're, they're carrying this man. He physically has not the ability to go anywhere without them. So they're carrying him on this mat. And for whatever reason, they go through all of this trouble and all this distraction to get him in front of Jesus. Could they have waited until the crowd left? Yeah. This is Jesus is at home, so they know he's there. He's not leaving and going anywhere. Could they have just waited? Could they have gotten there earlier? What I mean... The reality is, is they're not there for the man's sins to be forgiven. 
They want Jesus to heal the man's physical body. But I want you to notice, because I'm going to come back to this. I'm not going to unpack it right this second. Jesus doesn't say, sir. He doesn't say, brother. He uses the word, my child. It's phrasing that a father would speak to a child. Again, where's the man's family? We don't know. Who are these other four men? We don't know. And then he doesn't deal with the physical need in front of him that everybody sees. He deals with the spiritual, internal need that Jesus sees. And, and, and why does he deal with that? I'll tell you why. Because, again, in this day and age, they believe that if a child was born with physical deformity, somebody in the family sinned. And the sin became physically manifest in that person. So it was a mother, it was the father, it was generational. Have you ever heard the phrase generational curse? They believe that that's, was, it was manifesting itself in that individual. Now, we hear that today in the 21st century, and we're abhorred by that. We're like, I can't believe anybody would think that someone who can't walk, there is something sinfully wrong with them. If somebody said that about someone who had, who had an inability to walk, we would be mortified. I, I would come to their, their rescue publicly. So, so would everybody in this room. But this is what everybody thinks in the first century. Somebody in the family sinned. This person is cursed. This person is a cursed individual. You go to various parts of the world today, and that's still a, a, a thought. That's still an ideology. That the reason why there's a physical deformity or a handicap or any type of, of, of irregularity is because that there's sin or the gods are not pleased or there's something that's wrong. It's being manifest upon this child. Therefore, this child has no value. So Jesus addresses the sin because everybody in that room would have looked at the paralyzed man and would have immediately thought Jesus is going to heal him physically, but they all think he's there physically maimed and hurt because of his or someone in his family's sin, a generational sin. That would have just been a common thought. No, 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 no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Now look immediately, look at verse 6. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy, for only God can forgive sin. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? A couple thoughts. One, you're always going to have religious people in a room. Religious people. I don't like religious people. That's why I don't like church. Just being honest, I know I'm a pastor. It's kind of an occupational hazard. You got a pastor at church, but you don't like church. Because I've seen religious people do more harm in the name of God than any sinner in town. Because they invoke the name of God upon their own action. Very careful when you ever say God said. I've pastored this church for almost 15 years, and it's very rare that I will ever tell you. And if I say it, I will package it this way. I really feel like the Lord is leading us in this direction. And if that resonates with you, then why don't you come with me and let's do this. Because the reality is, is that religious people have an ability to try to 
theologize everything. And, 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 and if they don't, and, and again, if God truly has no beginning and no end, if he's infinite, and you and I are finite, which means we have a beginning and an end, our frontal lobal cortex can only handle so much information and data because it's finite, it's limited, but God is infinite. So there may be some things that God does that's just beyond us. And for some people, they just can't handle that. For me, I want to serve a God that makes sense, but I want him to do miraculous. I want him to go outside the bounds of what I can even think or see or imagine. I want a God that can raise people from the dead. I want to serve a God who can take someone whose life is completely busted and bring it back together. I want to see a God, and I want to serve a God who can take someone's marriage that's completely lost and bring it back home. I want to see, I want to serve a God where life change is possible. I want to serve a God who does exceedingly abundantly above all I could think or ask. Amen? But most religious people don't. They want to put God in a box. The religious people in this room, you're still hung up on Mark chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, because you're wanting to know, am I theologically correct? Did Jesus have a home? Because that really messes with your poverty mentality of Jesus. And to you, I would say, theologically speaking, you need to go to Lowe's and get a ladder and get over it. It's there. Deal with it. Wrestle with it however you want to. Is it a one-story house, two-story house? I don't know. But it's where he lived. He had to have a home. These religious people are trying to muddy the waters. And Jesus is one of the reasons why Jesus does this right in the middle of this. Because he knows the greater of the two miracles is the internal miracle, not the external miracle. You and I, because we're limited to the physical realm, we think that physical miracles are greater than, than, than spiritual miracles. When the truth of the matter is, is that the forgiveness of someone's sin is always greater than the healing of someone's body. Why? Because your body is corruptible. And from dust it came, from dust it will return. So whatever miracle God does in your physical body is limited. Spiritual is not limited by time or by space or by any continuum because what happens in you spiritually will live on forever. So the greater of the two miracles is always spiritual over physical. Although we like the physical because it's sensational. It's spectacular. I can see it. We in church, like a physical manifestation of God's presence, because it's something I can point to. It's kind of idolatry in a way, but that's a whole other story for a whole other day. We like to be able to point to it because then God showed up. The reality is, is what God does internally in our life is way more powerful than what God does externally. And when we begin to judge God's external measure in people's lives, you've got to be careful because there's a whole lot more going on internally in someone's life than what's happening. And the greatest need that day that the man had, I'm going to get to in a minute, was external or internal? We'll look at that in just a second. Jesus goes right there, and he deals with it. And he says in verse 9, Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up and pick up your mat and walk? He's speaking directly to the religious people. That's what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't pull any punches on church people. You know who Jesus gives a break to? The people that are lost and dead in their sins and don't know any better. But to church people, he slaps them upside the head. He really does. I mean, y'all read this way too, way too, like, I mean, he goes, I, 
he goes into the foyer of the church and begins to throw over tables because people are selling stuff in the foyer of the church. He said, you've turned this, this into a den of thieves. All you do is selling all this stuff in here. This isn't about, this is about prayer. It's about connecting with God. It's about people in a lost world being able to come in and find hope and life change and refuge and, and, and salvation through Jesus Christ. And all you're doing is selling trinkets in the foyer. If I was in the foyer turning over tables, people would go, oh, my goodness, somebody would have a smartphone out taking pictures. I'd be on the 6 o'clock news, not because I'm the pastor of the church, but because I had lost my ever-loving mind. But that's what Jesus does, not lose his ever-loving mind. Jesus always gets in the face of the religious people. And I'm telling you, I've been serving God for a long time. And the longer that I serve God, the more I have to realize that if I'm not careful, I become those religious people that I become those crusty Christians. And I try to package everything, and I try to theologize everything, and I try to, instead of just saying, you know what, I just want to make sure that my heart's pliable to what God's wanting to do. It's a bit of a rhetorical question. So in verse number 10, he says this, So I prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralyzed man, and he says, Stand, look at verse 11. Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus does the external to prove what he's doing internally. Because he knows that every person in the room, when they see him healed, what's happening? It's a physical manifestation of an, of, 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 of an internal reality. The, if the man's there because of sins that his family has committed, generational sins, that, that that's a product in his life. Therefore, if God heals him, the Son of God heals him physically, it's because the internal, the root has been taken care of. The root has been healed. Therefore, the fruit of the tree is good. And so the physical is now, is now taken care of in his life because his sins are forgiven. And so Jesus says, you know what? I'm not just going to do the physical. I'm going to do the spiritual. I'm going to do both. I'm not even going to pick one over the other. I'm going to do both. I, I, I'm, I'm going to show and prove. And so he tells the man, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately that's exactly what the man does. But he tells him, first of all, there's this physical thing that's happening. Stand up and pick up your mat. But the physical is a reality of the internal. He tells him to pick up your mat. Why? Because somebody else has been carrying it for him all these years. Take your sad song, take your victim mentality, take your life, and go where? Home. Why does he go home? This goes back to where's the family? I'll tell you where the family is. They've rejected him. Because if he's the epitome of sin and generational curse, they don't want him around because he's, if nothing else, he's, he's an eyesore. He's a reminder of whatever they've done wrong. And he's also, he's also the curse. Let's get him out of the house. That's what they would have done in the first century. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, go start your life over. Hey, now, now that, now that, now that you're, you're free, go, go get a job. And there's a Votech, Votech school over around the corner the government set up, and they'll take care of you and help you get a good job and get an apartment over here, some government subsidies. and blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. He says, go home. Why? Because what's happened in the man's life is not just physical, it's, it's spiritual. Because, again, what is the most, what's, what's the deeper need that we have, physical or spiritual? It's spiritual. What's the harder thing to do, to heal someone's broken arm or to heal someone's broken heart? Their broken heart is way more difficult than to heal their broken arm. 
You talk to anybody who's a counselor, who's a therapist, especially a Christian counselor or a therapist, they'll tell you that the complexities and how jacked up and how messed up people can be internally, that the help of the Holy Spirit and only what God can do in many cases is what really has to happen that works with the hand of the physician. Those two hands come together in order to see that person restored, and only God can do certain things. Only God can restore a heart. And so he says, I want you to go back to the people that rejected you. I want you to go back to the people that told you were nothing. What did Jesus say when he first sees him? My child. It's the first voice of a parent, the affirmation of a father to a son to acknowledge the relationship. This kid has nothing. This man has nothing. You want to talk about dad issues? You want to talk about mom issues? You want to talk about a broken heart? Everybody in the room wants to see him get up and rise up and walk. But the reality is the issue that he has is not that it's external. It's the internal. And that's what Jesus Christ sees every single time. It's not your broken arm. It's not your broken leg. It's not the the physical condition on the outside of you. It's not the the bill that needs to be paid or something external that needs to be met. It's the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. And Jesus reads his mail right there in his own living room and says, Son, your issue is not your physical body. Your issue is your heart. And to prove to every religious person and to prove to your family and anybody who will see today, I'm going to forgive you of your sins because it will set you free in your heart so that you can go home and forgive those people who have rejected you, who have have hurt you, who have, who have put you in this position. And by the way, don't leave your mat here. Don't leave your victim mentality here. There is no room for that in the kingdom. For whom God has set free is free indeed. And by the way, I will heal your physical body so the rest of these Christians in the room can get over themselves and understand that I am God. I am the one that Abraham spoke about. I am the one that Isaiah spoke about. I am the one that Joel spoke about. I am the great I am. Whatever this day needs me to be, just as God was with Moses, just as he would David, I am with you. And my son, pick up your mat and go home. And look at what they did. Amen. And I'm going to look excited. Look at verse 12. I need to catch my breath. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat. Not regrettably, he grabbed it. And he walked out through the stunned onlookers. And they were amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. What's not in that verse is Jesus did a mic drop right there and left. (laughs) Little MC Hammer can't touch this. On this 4th of July weekend, when we celebrate the freedom that we have in this country, I want you to catch one thing. Everybody in the room sees what's happening externally in your life, but God sees your heart. And God is more than capable of taking care of any physical external need that you have financial, whatever it may be, physical. But the issue isn't there. The issue is here. And you came in today with your own mat. Maybe somebody brought you. Maybe you came on your own. And the Holy Spirit speaking directly to you. And going, that's how I feel. Rejected and dejected. And I feel like all people see is external pain and shame that I carry. But I want you to understand, God looks beyond that and he sees your heart. He sees your hurt and he sees your pain. He never scolds the man. He doesn't shame him. 
Why? Because there was no need. Because Jesus knew his physical condition had nothing to do with anything he had done or his family had done. That was urban legend and myth, a lie of the enemy. But he wanted to prove that day that he was who he said that he was. Not to the religious people in the room. He didn't care. But to that man laying on that mat. Because it would change his life. And go home. Every other time Jesus has a miracle up to this point, he tells them, don't tell them about the miracle. Every other person, he says, don't go back to your village and tell them what's happened. What does Jesus say this time? I want you to go home. I want you to tell them. Because the only time you can forgive somebody else who's hurt you like that is when you've been forgiven. The only way you can release hurts and pains of the past of your family is when God set you free. That's it. It's a supernatural exchange. Only God can do that. So today on this 4th of July holiday weekend, we celebrate freedom. And I think that Mark's Gospel chapter 2 is one of the greatest passages on freedom that's written. Based on a true story.